Alrighty, guys, we are very fortunate now to welcome Dan Martin and Andrew Grant, writers behind the recently released Star Trek Resurgence, a pure pleasure of mine. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm so excited to talk to you guys about all things Trek and kind of uh, really break down a lot of what I've seen in the game so far. Uh, but before we do, I would love to pick your brains a little bit on uh, your careers in gaming and, and Trek overall. And Dan, I'd like to start with you, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, you've had a career that's been focused in interactive writing. You've touched on franchises like Halo, Batman, The Walking Dead, and of course, Star Trek. Uh, and Andrew, I believe quite quite the same there. Uh, Dan, what brought you to writing for games? Um, I kind of fell into it. I, uh, I moved to Los Angeles. I went to film school out here at USC. And then I was kicking around Hollywood, working in development for film and TV. I read uh, a lot of very bad scripts uh, and a few good ones along the way. And um, at uh, a certain point in time, Telltale Games had just had massive success with the Walking Dead franchise, and they were looking to expand their writing staff. And lo and behold, you know, I, I, they kept bringing me back for interviews. And next thing I knew, I was moving to San Francisco uh, for a little over a year to work there. And I uh, wrote for The Wolf Among Us, Walking Dead, Game of Thrones with Andrew. Um, and then I went back to LA and I worked as a contractor for them. So I got to keep kind of dipping into it. And, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, Halo is one of my favorite uh, video game franchises out there. I actually, you can't see it, but off screen, there's a poster for that right there. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I got to play with that and, you know, uh, recount some of my favorite lines from the very first one in a different context. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, it, it's been great working in licensed media just because, you know, there are these sandboxes that you grow up loving. And then mm -hmm. all of a sudden it's like, you know, getting all the action figures out of the box and you get to tell the story. Um, it's actually really fun and gratifying. And uh, I think Star Trek is my longest running, um, you know, fandom of the things I've worked on. And so this is kind of the top of the mountain for me. The top of the mountain, a reference maybe to Star Trek five poster behind you. There you go. That's Nicely cool. done, Dan. Yeah, that was, <laughs> he, he got that one in there. It's almost like he's a professional writer, you know? Uh, now, Andrew, you, I, I'm correct in saying that you've worked with Dan before and you've touched on several of those franchises as well. Yeah. Yeah. My uh, trajectory is somewhat similar. So I started in the film industry as a screenwriter and worked uh, for about a decade as a professional writer. And rather than, it's sort of similar, but inverted, I moved to Northern California first and uh, while working as a screenwriter and became familiar with Telltale Games and their player-driven narratives. And I'm like, this is really cool. I mean, I've always been a gamer, but interactive narrative is such a different beast as you're making choices and really driving the story forward. And so I met the founders and this was right after they won basically every game of the year award for Walking Dead season one. Mm -hmm. So they brought me on to sort of oversee Walking Dead season two and uh, started working at, with Telltale and at Telltale and worked on uh, Game of Thrones. Dan was part of that project and I worked on uh, Minecraft and Batman season one and season two. So that was really sort of my my introduction to the world of player-driven narrative. And all that while, you know, in the back of our minds, we were thinking that Star Trek is sort of the perfect marriage of um, 
franchise and format because mm-hmm. it's the storytelling is so rich and it's not just about like how are we going to blast our way out of this like it's there's uh, a lot of intelligence behind it and a lot of uh, gray area which is great fodder for making difficult choices. Yeah, just if I can jump in for one second, we would always talk about how do we make this choice really balanced? And we would, we would say, what is the Kirk, Spock, and McCoy version of it? Where McCoy and Spock, neither of them are wrong, but they're pulling at different uh, strings on Kirk. And that's kind of the same way we do it with the characters around the player to force the player to make a really hard decision that feels like it could go either way. And there's not like necessarily a wrong decision. I'd be lying if I said I didn't feel that from time to time in some of the choices that were offered. Um, and I'm curious, did you guys, this is not the first time we've mentioned Kirk and Spock kind of just in chatting, even before we started recording, did that inform kind of more of your, your story aspects than say TNG Voyager, any of those? I think the next generation was actually our touchstone. Um, there, the, one of the big pieces of the story is actually drawn from a very early uh, Next Generation episode mm-hmm. um, where that introduces the Takan Empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called The Last Outpost. And we spun out a, a large part of our story from just a little piece of that episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the aesthetics of it are largely drawn from Next Generation and Voyager. Mm-hmm. But, you know, being a fan of the franchise and having, you know, a, a we're a small team, but we have people of different ages and different levels of fandom. Um, you know, we did want to honor everything from the original series on TV up through some of the modern Trek. You know, mm-hmm. people may notice that the Resolute has a bridge window instead of just a view screen, because I think that's one of the mm-hmm. cool things about uh, the, the later iterations of Trek. And, you know, people might say, why would they have a window on their command center that's so... Uh, so risky. And then I would just point out, well, the Enterprise D has a skylight and so did uh, the Enterprise in the cage, the original uh, pilot. So um, don't come at me with your uh, your logic. Uh, but there are things, you know, we wanted to harken back to the original series movies, which in a lot of ways set a lot of the visual language for Star Trek The Next Generation. They were shot on a lot of the same sets. Um, and so there's this you know, you kind of can't do one without the other. And we didn't want to, you know, we wanted to play in kind of every piece of the sandbox, you know, with, uh, you know, references and, you know, lines of dialogue that can echo something um, said by Kirk. Uh, The other thing is that, you know, I think that Andrew probably has lots of thoughts about this as well, is that we wanted to give you the opportunity to play as your own captain or your own, you know, your own leader. I should say, because uh, he plays a first officer. And who do you emulate? Well, I think that Kirk is a model, Janeway's a model, Cisco's a model, uh, Picard is a model. And, you know, so, you know, from a sort of character archetype standpoint, we get to pull from all of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in term- narratively and aesthetically, you know, I think we were drawing from the entire canon, really, because everyone on the team ha- are such fans. And so you'll notice as you play through the game, we, re- we really want to create the sense of immersion. And there are these little details. Some of them are Easter eggs referencing, you know, some of your favorite uh, elements in, in different shows. Um, but like 
altogether, we really tried to focus on how can we create the most immersive experience for the fans. Mm-hmm. It feels like, and I'll, if you'll forgive the pun, like Star Trek as a brand has almost had a resurgence of late. Uh, was that something that you guys were conscious and aware of as you wrote Star Trek Resurgence? Or did that just kind of seem to happen kind of in, in happenstance? Um, you know, the name makes sense, doesn't it? it does. um, I, you know, I think that obviously when we started this project, it was uh, Discovery had been on the air, Picard was coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, Lower Decks, I think, premiered while we were in our development cycle. Strange so, New Worlds, though, was was not even uh, a thing. Like on the horizon, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think we I think we had seen Captain Pike in in Discovery uh, in Discovery, but it was you know the fan the fan outcry for give us Strange New Worlds had not yet um, taken hold and materialized. When did you guys start Resurgence then, timeline wise? Like a uh, what year? Roughly uh, beginning of twenty twenty. Okay, gotcha. Pandemic time. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Okay, so, I'm placing it in my brain. So. Yeah, beforehand, and then very quickly moving into uh, the pandemic. But you know, we were always going to be a remote studio. Mm. Um, you know, I'm in Los Angeles. Andrew's in the Bay Area. We have people that work in the Midwest. Um, you know, we've uh, got other partners that are in you know other parts of the globe. So mm-hmm. you know, it was uh, we were ready for it in some ways insofar as anybody could could have been ready for it sure Um, but uh you know the funny thing is about you know yes it feels like a great resurgence of the franchise Mm -hmm. paramount plus is awesome um -hmm. i am just as a fan stoked about all of the you know the new trek that we're getting but you know when you think about it star trek uh enterprise went off the air in sort of the early 2000s by 2009 -hmm. we had uh, the J.J. Abrams reboot, and we mm-hmm. had one of those movies every couple of years, mm-hmm. and it hasn't really gone away, um, you know. And that's one of the great things about it is it's perennial. It's mm-hmm. it's something that you can rely on, um, mm-hmm. even if it's just putting on your favorite episode of the Next Generation and saying, "I can rely on you know Picard to do the right thing and mm-hmm. to feel comfortable with these characters that I know and love and." When they come back in Picard season three, you know, they're still the characters you love, even as they have grown. Yeah, they were. I loved yeah. Picard season three is special. Any listener that's not checked it out, do so because it is it is special. Seconded. Yeah, Yeah, totally agree. Oh, man. Yeah. All right. So towards the end, we're going to talk about Picard season three. That's just that's just cool. But gents, let's uh, loop back to resurgence because I don't want to go too far off into into the weeds here. But I'm curious. One of the things that I thought was quintessentially Star Trek was how you launched what I would call kind of mini episodes within resurgence. Uh, we, we'd see kind of a, a starship pan across the screen next to a star base. And, you know, the title of that of that chapter would pop up and it felt very much like the beginning of a TNG episode or uh, a Voyager episode. And I would imagine those were conscious decisions on your part. Absolutely. Um, I think from the beginning, authenticity was an ethos that we wanted Star Trek resurgence to embody. Mm -hmm. And, you know, largely to what Andrew was talking about is that's how you immerse people in this game world is Mm -hmm. by making it feel as real and as much as the thing they love. So there's, there isn't, something to take them out of. And if anything, 
you know, it just the, the, the small touches like using the same next generation episode title font for the chapter titles. Um, it, I think it brings people in, uh, in, in, in a way, um, you know, our cinematics team did a lot of watching of, you know, every iteration of Star Trek to figure out how do they, how do you, you know, tell these stories on screen visually, like what are the touchstones and, you know, just the establishing shots of ships. And, you know, that's a very TNG thing that they looked at. And then, you know, leaving space dock is, is it happens in a lot of different versions, but I think we all know, you know, the motion picture is the original and probably the best. Um, and, you know, so making it feel like you were playing and living through and, you know, impacting an, ep an episode, a, a maxi episode of mm -hmm. Star Trek, the next generation, or, you know, elements of the show of next generation, first contact into this kind of bingeable extended story was exactly what we wanted to do. Um, yeah, I would almost then, argue it's almost a, like a season, a full season of content. Uh, and that was very much intentional, like the chapter structure. We had come from releasing episodes at Telltale episodically. But for this, we were like, how can we approach this as a self-contained, like a, a full feature-length movie version, playable movie, or full season of content? And at the same time, having two playable characters gave us a nice natural segue from like the A storyline and the B storyline, but they're interwoven. And the great thing about the interactive medium is that you're making choices as one character that ripple through and affect your character uh, in the other, other storyline as well. And it's a tribute to our cinematic team that they were able to sort of seamlessly transition from one to the other and has that sort of classic track cliffhanger almost at the end of each chapter. There were certainly like natural start and stopping points to those chapters that uh, made it easy to kind of play a segment and pause, reflect on the choices and what had gone on with those characters. Uh, your two main characters, Jar Rydek, played by Kritzia Bajos, uh, and uh, Carter Diaz, played by Josh Keaton, uh, they do a fantastic job. And it's funny you talk about that A and B storyline because our game begins with them together. And then they go on their own paths and they do interweave. Uh, and I think I think players are likely to uh, identify with one or both of those characters at various points. Um, but you really do get to choose which characters you want to emulate from the real story. My, my Jara plays very similar to a Picard, uh, as it were, in terms of doing the right thing, holding your captain accountable, that kind of stuff. Um, was that... I suppose the question in that is, did you all have uh, a favorite uh, moment between those two or a time where you felt like the, the writing for one didn't match the other in, in the ways that it needed to? Well, I think across a story this large and, you know, the story that a player experiences is only a fraction of the content that we had to write and create. Mm -hmm. You're always going to have moments where it's it's work to make them, you know, feel like they're naturally going from one POV to the other and that they're balanced and that the impacts of, you know, one side's storyline matches the impact of the other. And um, I think we're really happy with the place that we landed. Um, but, uh, you know, the, 
it was an early decision. I think it, it was one of the first decisions we made about the game was we were not going to, we were going to do a single release. It was going to be one story that we can write and refine across the whole thing. And then it was going to be two POVs just because it's such a, a huge world that we wanted to see multiple sides of it. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, Andrew and I having both uh, worked on the Game of Thrones game for Telltale where there were multiple POVs or five. five at times, um, we saw the benefits of it. And I think also some of the difficulties and we were able to take lessons learned there and apply it to resurgence. And I think that, um, you know, it, I think it worked well. I mean, if I, you know, if I can say so, I, I, I was happy with the, the freedom it gave us to give you that kind of moment of, of a cliffhanger because, in a lot of these types of games, you're just with the same, if you have one POV, you're with the same character very continuously. And it kind of takes away some of that uh, dramatic energy that you can create by building to a moment and then leaving people wanting more, um, like a good commercial break or episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in, and in the Trek universe, naturally, if it's a single POV, you're spending most of your time on the bridge, right? Yeah. Unless it's a, an away mission, but most time spent on the bridge. And so, very intentionally early on and we kicked this off we're like we need to have a character in the lower decks and mm -hmm. that's actually been super gratifying for me seeing fan response like people love carter's story and the characters that he interacts with like it's just cool to have that balance of if jara's focused more on diplomacy uh and uh carter is more like he's you know he's an engineer he rolls up his sleeves and and gets things done. So it's a really nice balance, I think. It it was an interesting choice to introduce the two characters together uh, and showcase Carter being so nervous and Jara having to reassure or scold, according to the player. Uh, but they were in a shuttle on the way in, and that felt to me very TNG, you know, shuttle approaching the ship, almost uh, all good things, Tasha Yar type moments. Well, I think that, you know, we wanted to bring people into the sort of fantasy of Star Trek. Um, and like we said, you know, immersing you in it. And so an arrival is a good departure point, really. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, we're able to walk you through. And that's also why we chose Jara as, uh, as a playable character coming to the Resolute for the first time is that it was a natural way to, introduce characters and, and let you get to know the ship um, yeah. bit by bit, as opposed to coming with all kinds of preconceived information. You're um, starting at the same spot, right? Like it's all new and you're thrust into this situation where you're the new XO, but there's a history involving the previous XO, which is also part of the prequel comic series uh, mm -hmm. that sort of unpacks what happened in the past. But it's a challenging dynamic. Like you play Jaro, who's incredibly accomplished, but at the same time, not necessarily like people, you really have to earn people's trust. You have to prove yourself. And some people resent the fact that uh, Captain Solano hired from outside the ship instead of promoting from within. So this, these are all these dynamics that you're walking into as Jara, the playable character. Yeah, and, and in, in creating Jara, it's kind of a symbiosis of, uh, you know, what is what makes it good for the player coming in, you know, to ease them into the, the story world and then 
kind of what storytelling opportunities does that create for us in terms of fleshing them out? And, it, you know, as you develop it, it pushes and pulls until you get to something where, you know, it, it works on a story level as well as a gameplay level. Uh, mm -hmm. Because, you know, we're always trying to balance, you know, telling a great story and giving the player that all the tools they need to make choices, to, to feel invested, to feel like they have agency over what's happening um, on screen and in their hands. Mm -hmm. Interactive storytelling, not an easy thing to do, particularly when you're working with a, a franchise that's so steeped with nerds like myself who notice if the phaser is, is uh, tilted or not tilted, straight or not, where the uniforms are. And uh, I'm curious, is there a Star Trek Bible that you all had to look to or to follow to kind of slot your story in? But then is it difficult within that to create a story with branching paths as well and let it stay confined? Well, so the two kind of different questions on the... Sure. On the um, the question of, you know, where do we turn to for resources? Mm -hmm. um, the number one thing is uh, memoryalpha.com. It's um, mm -hmm. a fan curated website that is, uh, you know, as accurate as you're going to find anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, there's, uh, there are also technical manuals that I know people on our team have, uh, have looked at screenshots, lots and lots of screenshots, just going through and finding the details because, you know, memory alpha might tell you, Hey, this is a types, you know, type two phaser, but then you have you have to go and find how many places was it used, what kind of beam was it, um, and uh, you know, I would also say, say, sorry, go ahead. I, I was going to say lots of healthy debate because there are so many eras to pull from and styles, and even down to like the height of the steps on the bridge. Like there was intense discussion and debate about how to do it and the color of the carpet and the wood paneling, like lots of discussion. And again, all coming from a place of pure fandom and love and like, what's the best version we can create? Yeah. And then, you know, whenever we ran into trouble, we also had a great relationship with uh, Paramount CBS mm -hmm. and, you know, we could ask them for, um, you know, Pantone color reference uh, for certain things, or, mm -hmm. you know, we had uh, Mike Johnson who, uh, writes comic books uh, for Star Trek. He's also um, embedded with the Star Trek uh, video game licensing team and mm -hmm. was able to answer, you know, questions of, you know, the kind of things also you don't know how to search for. Like, we need this type of thing. We haven't figured out what it was. And mm -hmm. he says, oh, it's the communications trunk. And it's like, okay, great. The communications trunk on the Starship, that's what we need. Um, so having that kind of resource helps a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. In terms of picking the timeline, it really came down to a couple of things. Um, one, what timeline do we like the most? I mean, it's, mm -hmm. this game is a labor of love and you know, I think everybody on the team has inserted their own fandom and their own personalities into it in ways. Um, there's also, you know, like anything you do market research and you figure out what do fans want? And there was a huge appetite for kind of this era. Mm -hmm. And then from the real creative development side, uh, we wanted to find some area where, you know, a point in time where we had the freedom to tell our story and not feel like we were trying to stick the landing on somebody else's. Uh, like I said, we didn't know, you know, we started this before Picard came out. 
we didn't know mm -hmm. what they were going to do. We just knew that, you know, the Romulan supernova event of Star Trek 2009 played a role. So we wanted to stay away from that. Mm -hmm. um, so we basically, we said, okay, it's the year after Star Trek Nemesis. Mm -hmm. There's no more, you know, there's no Voyager. There's no Deep Space Nine. It's pretty wide open for like mm -hmm. five, seven years until the supernova. Mm -hmm. This is our, this is our time. And also we put it on a different ship. You know, we, mm -hmm. we, we, we created the Resolute. Um, we, com we commissioned a Centaur class refit and mm -hmm. we, um, you know, by making it our own ship and our own characters for the most part, you know, that gave us a lot of freedom to immerse the player in our Star Trek story. Was it difficult to pick the ship class that you guys wanted? Uh, yes and no. You know, we looked at a lot of classes, but the 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 Centaur class st stood out very early on because it has, you know, at least, you know, real world production, it was created for the Dominion War mm -hmm. arc. Um, and sort of fandom and canon has debated whether or not it's an older class that was used in the Dominion uh, mm -hmm. War, or was it a new class for the Dominion War that was built from spare parts, or was it an older class that was revived? Um, mm -hmm. I don't think we have definitively said which of it it is, but we just love that it's it's got some of the TOS movie look to the outside. Mm -hmm. It's the Excelsior kit bashed with a Miranda. And then mm -hmm. on the inside, we said, well, it's built for this time period, or at the very least refit for this time period. So, mm -hmm. you know, we can bring some of that next generation feel carpeting, uh, soft lighting, um, uh, you know, the, the kind of the, the warp, the engine room that you expect, um, mm -hmm. wood paneling as, uh, as Andrew has mentioned. So it was kind of this great, you know, have your cake and eat it too, mm -hmm. uh, where you get kind of the best of both worlds, old and new. And then, you know, we, we added a bridge window because that feels contemporary to Star Trek. And um, who's to say that in 2380, they didn't start doing that, right? right. Um, and then, you know, we looked at other ship classes like the Cheyenne class, the New Orleans class, uh, even the Nova class, which would, you know, was even, is even smaller than the Centaur. Mm -hmm. um, but the whole idea was uh, a ship that was going to be on its back heel once it got into something really big. Um, mm -hmm. You know, this is not a sovereign class uh, right. you know, flagship. This mm -hmm. is, this is um, you know, a bit of an underdog. Yeah, very much so. And I, that was the first thing I noted uh, when I saw it, because I was like, that doesn't quite look like, like the Centaur from DS9 uh, that we saw, but also it did. And so I was like, ah, this can't be a powerhouse ship. And so Science Vessel made perfect sense. And uh, I think it, it suits it. But, you know, your, your, main character ship or your your hero ship of the of the series says a lot about what you're doing with the franchise uh or the the series or in general so that was that was cool yeah i mean the uh, ship is a main character yeah in for sure in these shows you know kirk's great love story in you know the original series and the movies it's with uh it's with the enterprise mm -hmm. you know when he sees the enterprise crashing at the end of uh star trek 3 mm -hmm. you know he's seen the love of his life go down in flames. So yep. it's, that's, you know, it's rightfully an emotional moment. Mm -hmm. Yep. Big time, big time. Uh, we had, we had a listener coach Hulk right in. Uh, he was curious about the choice arcs that you all have to write uh, to make them fit in universe. Sometimes I would imagine those uh, would kind of 
change based on your choices in terms of length, like how long the story might be. Uh, and then to add on to that, does that mean you guys have like a wall of like branching butterfly effect choices somewhere? Uh, yeah, so we have a, a fantastic um, game writing tool called Beanie that was developed, you know, basically to make this game mm -hmm. that does a lot of the flow charting. But in mm -hmm. order to write it, Andrew and I and the other writers that worked with us uh, had to have basically the whole thing in your head because mm -hmm. yes, the, the tool can track it all, but we would have to remember the things that were said or done earlier that mattered that we would call back to. So, you know, at a certain point when it splits, you know, totally divergently, mm -hmm. you just know that there are two paths to follow, but the game remembers everything. And there's a whole feedback system that gives you more insight into how your choices have changed your relationships. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had to just keep that running as a running tally in our heads. Um, uh, you know, Andrew, do you have anything you want to add to that? Oh, yeah, no, of course. I mean, to me, that's the crux of what makes interactive storytelling so compelling. Instead of passively observing, watching a linear story play out, like I'm making the choices that are defining and shaping my experience. It's sort of tailored the way uh, I choose to play. Like, um, so, so people may say, I'm going to play this game as Picard would. You know, I'm going to make those sort of choices. And so then throughout almost every opportunity to call back to those earlier choices, we we do. And so it's incredibly complex, made easier with uh, Beanie, our proprietary narrative tool. But still, like that is sort of the secret sauce of interactive storytelling. And as you know from playing the game, like those choices ripple forward for the rest of the game. Players or characters, I should say, will live or die or uh, remember the things that you've done positively or negatively and reflect like this is your play style. And you may play it a second time and have completely different outcomes. Yeah. And in terms of, you know, the gameplay length, a lot of the differences in playthroughs are more driven by how you interact with it when we take you out of the sort of cinematic side of the story and you know let the player walk around the spaces investigate things engage in action scenes those are generally more fungible in terms of of the amount of time when it comes to choices we don't want to give you a bad version of the story we don't want to shortchange you based on your choices like there are no you know, there are no right answers there are no wrong answers the only right answer is the one that you choose so you know, we don't want to give you a, a playthrough where you make a choice and it ends halfway through. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are hard hard fails in certain action scenes, but we don't want to say, you know, as the choice that you've made, like you've chosen to defy an order, like that's not the end of the game uh, mm -hmm. by any stretch of the imagination. You're going to get to see what happens because you've defied an order and follow it through all the way to the end. I've certainly angered Captain Solano, uh, played by Jim Meskimen. I've angered him quite a bit in my time with the game so far. And I think it's a testament to the writing and uh, the voice acting that I do not like Captain Solano at this point from where, at where I am. Uh, but we've talked about Jara. We've talked about Carter, now Captain Solano. You guys have characters that could easily sit at a table next to Seven of Nine and Captain Janeway and Picard and so on. And slot in there, argue, defend themselves, agree with. 
what makes writing a good Star Trek character? Because these are hero characters. They slot right in. I think the number one thing is, and it's one of the things that I was so happy, you know, that we could explore in Star Trek is that these characters fundamentally want to do the right thing. Hmm. You know, the characters in Starfleet are there because they believe in a mission. They want to do the right thing. Um, you know, we have flawed characters, absolutely, that have, you know, ambitions or, um, you know, their own personal blind spots or things, you know, trauma that they can't let go of. Um, and, you know, in that, we kind of are moving a little bit away from what they call as Roddenberry's box, um, mm -hmm. which uh, some people say hampered some of the storytelling early on in Star Trek The Next Generation, where there couldn't be conflict between the crew members. Um, but at the end of the day, it all comes down to, you know, like Kirk, Spock and McCoy. They disagree, but they fundamentally are trying, arguing for something they think is good. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even if it's coming from a different place. And find a way to work together, right? Towards a common goal. That's, that's what's so inspiring about the franchise, for sure. Do either of you have a favorite character? It's got to be tough when they can branch, but a favorite one? I mean, yeah, I think, uh, you know, if you, if a character is, you're not liking a character as a writer, I think that it's generally your fault. Um, oh. So you just have to put, you just have to put more work into it to mm -hmm. make the character more vibrant. And, you know, there are characters you love to hate and that's fine. Mm -hmm. um, but you have to have that, you know, if a character is boring you, you know, that's on you. Um, so there's none that I that I am not interested in. I think that uh, you know, I don't know. It's like picking. It's like picking your favorite kid. It is like picking question. your favorite child. I will. I will say though, and this is not a favorite, but you know, in our premise, there is a certain character. It's not a spoiler because it's in the trailer. Mm -hmm. but the opportunity to uh, write for Portal Six Three, mm -hmm. it was uh, super cool. Mm -hmm. Portal Six Three. Uh, the last outpost to con empire. I think exactly. Trek fans would, would know that one. Absolutely. Exactly. Uh, that, that is the episode that introduced a a young Luke me uh, to uh, philosophy, you know, fear itself. And I was like, what? I don't get it. And I had to Sounds really good. think that's right. That's right. Um, interesting take on Ferengi in that episode too. Very, very cool. Yeah. Armin, Armin Shimmerman plays one of the Ferengi in that episode and he gets to, um, you know, get another swing at it, obviously, as Quark in Deep Space Nine. So, yeah, um, you know, so exactly. See it uh, that has inspired a lot of great Star Trek uh, with, uh, you know, Armin Shimmerman learning from his performance and growing. One of the things I liked about early TNG is how many seeds they planted for things to be explored. Uh, some of them explored, some of them not. Uh, you know, there's the the famed episode with... Uh, Oh, gosh, I'm losing it right now. The creatures on the back of the neck. Conspiracy. Conspiracy. Thank you. Never explored except in Star Trek Online, from what I'm told. Um, but like neat seeds uh, there for sure. I, uh, I'm i curious. Do you ever see your characters interacting in live action? Is that something you guys would ever want to see? Well, I, everybody's seen that the Lower Decks crew is making mm -hmm. an appearance in Strange New Worlds in live action. Um, mm -hmm. And I would be lying if I said I didn't think that uh, 
some of our actors could pull it off uh, in yeah. live action as well. Um, Kritzia Bajos, who plays Jara, uh, was in the third season of Barry um, mm -hmm. uh, recently. So, you know, they could they definitely have the chops and I, I wouldn't be mad about it. Yeah, it'd be an interesting crossover. Plus an opportunity to bring back those great uniforms on screen. Yeah, big time. Big time. Uh, it, it, so I'm, we need to call Terry Metalis and, and start letting him know uh, for legacy, find a way to get him in there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, at that point, they'll be a little bit more mature. They'll have grown mm -hmm. in their own ways. Uh, it'll be an interesting uh, experiment to see, see what's happened to them in the past couple of decades. Yeah, that's so cool. Guys, when you think back, I mean, you wrote a Star Trek. That's no small feat. And I'm sure given your careers and, and uh, the franchises you've worked with, you have kind of pinnacle moments. But uh, are there any standout elements of writing and working with Resurgence that you kind of hang your hat on? Um, there's uh, So my first job when I came to Hollywood was working in the Roddenberry building on the Paramount lot. Um, so it's... Uh, the whole thing is coming full circle for me. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, sometimes it's hard to put into words. It's it's a, a dream fulfilled to work on Star Trek. Uh, I think some of my favorite things were picking the ship and seeing that come to life um, and the bridge. Uh, you know, Andrew mentioned the, the carpet got debated a lot and I got the carpet that I wanted, the teal carpet that harkens to the enterprise B, uh, which I always thought had a really great look to it. It had, you know, teal carpet, wood accents. Um, and it was a, you know, an Excelsior class. So kind of makes sense that some of that would carry over, uh, getting to explore the lower decks was something that I, you know, was really happy we got to do because miles O'Brien is like the hardest working man in Starfleet. And I always thought it's really weird that he's literally the only enlisted personnel I think outside of uh, was it the siege of AR one thirty eight? Um, yeah, we see we see Marines, and you know we didn't we don't really go into their um, uh, their ranks, but I have to imagine some of them are enlisted. But it was great to see that uh, and get to explore that. And then it's also not a spoiler because it's in the latest trailer, but uh, Jonathan Frakes appears as William Riker in this game, and you know, writing for Riker, and then getting to uh, work with Jonathan on the voice uh, recording was, you know, it, it is like, I, that's when you feel like I'm making real Star Trek. Mm -hmm. So that that's was, cool. yeah, that was, a, that was a high point for sure. Yeah. For me, yeah. like I said earlier, like it was always sort of a, of a dream to work in the Star Trek universe and then to realize that and to be writing this, especially when this all played out during the pandemic, like to be, immersed in a world where diversity was seen as a strength, like where we're all working towards like a higher common goal. Uh, it was sort of my salvation. And then for this uh, game to be so well received by the fans, like that has been so gratifying. Like we poured our hearts into this story, into all of the details, into the color of the carpet, like all aspects and that it's resonating with, the fans, like, it's really, really gratifying. I'm so grateful. Yeah. And, and like on, on a sort of detail level, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's phenomenal to see people pick up on a little detail that you put in there and they say, oh, you know, I get that because of this one little thing that, you know, it, it, 
when they see the moves you're making and appreciate it, uh, it's it's really great. You know, it feels like they're not just you know playing the game; they're invested in it and they're they're fully immersed, living in it. Yeah, very much so. And uh, to any listener. Uh, to what Andrew said much earlier in the interview, this truly is a season's worth of content. Like you are sitting there for a season of Star Trek, which uh, as a fan it, it is sublime and could not be enjoyed more. Uh, gentlemen, I want to thank you both for your time today. This was an absolute blast. And to get to to dive into the world of Trek with people that created is pretty darn cool. So thank you both. Well, thanks for having us on. I'm just noticing in your background, you have an energy sword from Halo. Yeah. Uh, energy swords, lightsabers, uh, Mjolnir, the Nerf guns from Halo. I'm, I'm pretty diehard into sci-fi. Yeah, uh, and like even when you said Siege of, um, the Siege episode of DS9, I'm thinking about Bill Mummy. He was he was in Babylon Five, and then he was in that episode too, and whatnot. Yeah, man, I I I love sci-fi, and I it's cool. Yeah, well, you've got your cred showing. So, um, no, we appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk about it. And, uh, you know, um, Andrew, uh, you have a sign off for yourself here? Yeah, yeah. thanks so much, Luke. It's been uh, a pleasure to uh, talk about the game. Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys, that's going to be it for us. Have a great rest of your week. Take care.